morning. So a, a long time after the events that are taking place in the early chapters of Genesis that we're now working through, the people of Israel will find themselves uh, enslaved um, in Egypt for more than 400 years. They will need a deliverer. And then in Exodus chapter 2, the book after Genesis, in Exodus chapter 2, that deliverer will be born to a Hebrew couple who are enslaved in Egypt. But there will be a problem. And the problem is that uh, not only has Pharaoh made life difficult by demanding more work and more painful work out of the enslaved people, but I have a fear that he's going to lose control of the Hebrews. He, uh, he decides, he gives an order to have all of the Hebrew boys who were born put to death. And this Hebrew couple, they don't know what to do. They manage to keep their baby boy hidden for about three months. And then the mom decides that she has to do something she really doesn't want to do. And so she takes a basket made of cypress and she coats it with pitch to seal it up. And she places her infant son in the basket and she sets him adrift in the waters among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, banks of the Nile. It, was a, it will be a very, uh, it'll be a very um, desperate move on her part. For all she knows, she is surrendering her young son to certain death. But we know that's not what will happen. Pharaoh's daughter will discover the baby floating in the water in this basket. And she will take him, and eventually she will take him into her home, and she will raise him as her own son, and she will give him the name Moses. And when Moses becomes a man, God will call him to be the deliverer, the one who will go to Egypt and lead the Hebrew people out of captivity, slavery in Egypt, and into their own uh, promised land. What God will do there on the banks of the Nile River in Exodus 2, God has done before. And God, in a manner of speaking, will do again in the future. So last week, we looked at Noah. We began to look at Noah. We looked at the ark. We talked about God's grief and regret over the wickedness of humanity, in particular the violence done to human beings by one another. God saw the wickedness of humanity and determined that a cleansing was necessary. We said last week that this was never something God wanted to do. God does not desire that anyone perish. However, things had gotten to the point that a restart seemed to be the only option, as painful as that would be. And I proposed to you last week something that I want to remind us all of again today, and the reality that as devastating as all of this was, <clears throat> when God sent the floodwaters on the earth, God did not abandon creation, God saved it. God did not abandon creation, God saved it. To abandon creation would have been to do nothing and to let things simply play out. Oh, God saved us. And God did this through Noah and his family, and for as terrible as, as all that was and would be, we found this hopeful verse in chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, whose name meant rest, and whose birth was foretold as the promise of comfort to God's people and to the ground, Noah was favored by God. And God told Noah the plans that he had and instructed him to build an ark. And the word translated as ark just means box or chest. It's the Hebrew word teva, 
Doesn't look like that's how you pronounce it, but you do. Hebrew is funny when you transliterate it. Teva, box or chest. However, we think this word was likely borrowed from, it's a loan word, borrowed from ancient uh, Egyptian word, meaning, wait for it, coffin or chest. And in a sense, that fits. Those on board the ark were passing into and out of death. I want you to hold on to that thought for a bit. So God told Noah to build an ark out of cypress wood according to the international version, not gopher wood, and certainly not hickory bark, as some of us may have sung when we were children. But the truth is the Hebrew word there is very uncertain, so for all we know, it could mean that Noah did build the arky arky out of hickory barky barky. <laughs> and if you don't know that, you're just young. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Celebrate that fact. God then instructs Noah on what kinds of animals, how many animals to, to be housed in the ark. He shut them up in it, and then the rains came. We're told it rained 40 days and 40 nights. <clears throat> and this is what we are told in verses 17 to uh, 24, I think. 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the enti entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the the earth, only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. The language here is very reminiscent of the language in Genesis chapter 1 and the creation story. There are references to birds of the air. There are references to all the animals that swarm over the surface of the earth. There are references to humankind. Furthermore, several times in this, this greater passage, you, didn't, you don't hear some of it so much of it yet in what I've read to you, but in the larger section we're looking at, the number seven pops up. Seven clean animals, seven unclean animals. Seven days until the flood. Seven days in between each time Noah sends out a bird, a raven, and then a dove three times. And all of these sevens are meant to remind us of the seven days of creation in Genesis 1 as well. And there God created the heavens and the earth and all the creatures that dwell on the earth. In Genesis 7... God decreates them. God decreates them. In Genesis 1, he placed the creatures on the land. In Genesis 7, he wipes most of them off the face of the land. So, in the structure of the narrative, we have moved from creation to decreation. From creation to decreation. And there's one more clue for us in this move from creation to decreation. Back in Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before God created in Genesis 1, what we had there, what we saw was dark, chaotic waters. And now in Genesis 7, God has taken things back to that watery chaos. This is one of the clearest indications that God does not primarily intend judgment through the flood, but a reboot, a renewal, a restart. God is about to recreate all that he has decreated. And so when we continue the story in Genesis 8, after the floodwaters had been covering the earth for 150 days, we read this, 
But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. A little further down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. I didn't even think of those sevens there. The seventh month, the seventh, 17th. The tops of the mountains became visible. It's not, by the way, when it says that uh, God remembered Noah, it's not that God forgot about Noah, um, as if to say all of a sudden, oh, good heavens, I've forgotten about Noah. Scholar John Goldengay says probably a better way to understand it is God was mindful of Noah and the animals on the ark. And notice he included the animals that God was mindful of. God was mindful of Noah, and now that all the work of decreating has finished, it's time to move toward restoration, towards comfort and hope for the future. Once again, notice the wording. When God decides to begin to the recreation of the land, God sends a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. I want you to picture that. Water everywhere, dark and threatening and chaotic, and then God sends a wind over the water, and things begin to change. And what is the Hebrew word translated as wind? Ruach. <clears throat> Ruach, which can mean spirit or breath as well. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, God's Ruach, God's spirit, hovers over the water. In Genesis 8, 150 days after uh, uh, the water has been covering the earth, nothing but water everywhere, as far as the eye can see. God sends his Ruach over the water, and the water begins to recede. The tops of the mountains emerge from the chaos. Likewise, on day three of creation, we read this in Genesis 1-9. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Just as God caused the land to appear, to emerge from the waters as his spirit hovered over them in Genesis 1, so God does it all over again in Genesis 8 with the tops of the mountains. But there's more. Forty days after the mountains become visible, Noah sends out a raven and later a dove three different times. Again, picture a dove flying over water, water everywhere, Hovering over water, we could say, this too calls to mind the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of chaos in Genesis 1, over the waters before creation. In other words, decreation is over, the work of recreation is about to begin, chapter 8, verses 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. Noah and his family emerge from the ark, and God's instructions to be fruitful and multiply and increase in number on the earth. It could not be any clearer. What God says here to Noah restates what God said to the first humans in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. In Genesis 6 and 7, God decreates. And in Genesis 8, God begins the work of recreation. It is not too difficult, once you get to this point, uh, to see uh, in this recreation part of the story, to see how it's going to lead us to Jesus. But there may be a few surprises for us along the way. said earlier that the Hebrew word for ark was likely an Egyptian loan word, originally meaning coffin or chest. And that word, uh, teva, 
occurs 28 times in 25 verses in the Old Testament. All but two of them appear in the account of the flood in Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. The other two times pop up in a surprising place. I've already told you about it. I just obscured it. In the book of Exodus, when the Hebrew woman places her infant son Moses in a cypress basket coated with pitch, the word translated as basket is actually the same word translated as ark back in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Moses' mother placed him in an ark. Both Noah's ark and that of Moses are made of the same kind of wood, coated with pitch, and set adrift in the waters. Something about what happens over in Exodus 2 with the infant Moses mirrors what happens, or is hyperlinked to what happened to Noah in the flood. Again, keeping in mind that the word ark is likely a loan word from Egyptians, meaning coffin, Noah's ark is an escape from the death and devastation of the flood. Moses' ark is an escape from the death of all the Hebrew boys ordered by Pharaoh. Both make it to safety. Both lead to new possibilities. and Both are promises of recreation in their own way. Noah's ark leads to a recreation of creation. Moses' ark leads to a recreation of the people of God as a nation. Both testify to God's commitment and God's loyalty to his people and his purposes. Both promise us a way through when things are at their darkest and most chaotic. Both are, in a sense, a picture of death and resurrection. New Testament writers often read the Old Testament differently than we do. There's a literal reading. There's a very analytical study kind of reading. And then there is also another kind of reading, a reading that that went beyond, goes beyond a literal reading of the text, finding within the text a spiritual meaning beyond a literal meaning or a sacramental meaning. When, When I was in seminary, we would read parts of the New Testament and where Paul would do that or Peter would do that, and we would say, he can't do that. He can't use that passage from the Old Testament that way. That's not, if we did that in class, we would get an F. But they saw things differently, and I think we have something to learn from how the ancient Christians read the Old Testament. Not as the only way to read it, but I think there's something here. Reading it as if it has a spiritual meaning beyond the literal meaning. Reading it what some call a sacramental reading. A reading that brings a certain grace to us. The Apostle Peter does this in his first epistle. There's a whole lot more going on in 1 Peter chapter 3, but I want us to zero in on a particular part. This is a very weird section. I'm not going to read you the weird parts. (laughs) Uh, Verses 20 and 21, I want you to listen to how Peter understands the flood in the days of Noah from a Christian point of view. Peter sees the flood as a symbol of what Christ does for us through our baptisms. He writes of people who were disobedient in those days when... God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Peter doesn't see God destroying the world through the flood. Peter sees God saving the world, baptizing the world through the flood in the same way that Jesus saves us the flood of our baptisms. 
Once again, God's purpose in the flood was not to destroy creation. It was to save creation. Just as God's purposes in the flood of our baptisms into Christ's death and resurrection is to save us. This is why in the practice of believers' baptism, when we take people back there into the baptistry, this is why they go down into the grave and they come back up alive. It's a death and a resurrection. They are renewed. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us that if anyone is in Christ Jesus, if anyone has come to faith in Christ Jesus, that is, if anyone has come to the place, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord of the universe and Lord of their lives, and believes in their heart that God did in fact raise Jesus from the dead, he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If that's the case, new creation has come. New creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And then after likening the flood of Genesis to baptism, Peter says of baptism, a little further, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Where is Jesus? He's on the throne. He's seated at God's right hand. He reigns over all of it. Angels, authorities, powers. He is faithful. He is in control. He is king of all things. And because of this, we can have confidence. We can know that we too are being delivered out of the violence and the wickedness and the sin that pervades all of fallen human society. We too are being renewed and recreated. As we entered into this section of Genesis a few weeks ago, it became more challenging for our worship leaders to find songs that you could sing when talking about such things. Because Genesis chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 do not naturally lend themselves to worship. Don't get me wrong, I think our worship leaders have done an amazing job. But it was not easy for them to come up with songs to sing to tie these themes together. So a couple of weeks ago, Greg Lauk, who was playing guitar earlier, Greg Lauk, began to make a list of all the songs we can't sing because we're talking about the flood. Because it just changes the meaning. Just by the titles alone. There's lyrics that cause problems too. This is just the titles. This week, Kurt and I began to add to that list. The titles of some of the songs we have sung on Sunday mornings just don't work in the context of the flood. You hear them differently in the context of the flood. And they go, oh, I can't say that. Here are a few that we decided would not work just based on their titles. Do it again. Oceans. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Open up the heavens. Fill this place. My personal favorite, hell or high water. Except, ironically, that one does work, and we're singing it later. It works quite well. So as we consider this passage and its connections to Moses and Jesus, as we consider our own life challenges or the dark, chaotic waters of the pandemic, of an incredibly politically divided nation, of senseless gun violence, of racial injustice, or the personal loss and pain that we experience, where, where, where does God want to recreate you? Where does God want to renew you? 
Where does God want to cleanse you? In what, in what area of life do you, do we need to be reminded that God can be trusted? That God has our best interests at heart and that Jesus is still on the throne. So this morning is Communion Sunday where all of us who have come to know Christ and seek to follow Christ and give our lives to Christ are invited to take part in this sacrament. We will eat of the bread that stands in for the body of Christ. We will drink of the cup that reminds us that his blood was poured out for us. We will do this together in remembrance of Christ's death and resurrection. He who has gone into the floodwaters of violence and death and come out on the other side on our behalf. And so as we enter communion this morning and prepare our hearts to come to this table, Christ invites us to come as we are, to bring whatever challenges, whatever dark, chaotic waters we are facing. It may be a loss. It may be a relationship that is not going well. It may be a medical crisis or a financial crisis. It may be the consequences of our own sin and failures or simply an overall sense that we're just having a hard time seeing God at work, believing God is at work and trusting God. Whatever it is, whatever the nature of your dark, chaotic waters, I invite you to take a moment, join me in just a moment of silence, simply name that thing or things that come to mind, that situation, that relationship, whatever it is. Name it silently in prayer and just give it to God. Just say, Lord, I just give you this. You know this is difficult for me right now. You know this is painful. You know I'm fearful, anxious, angry, whatever it is. Just lift it up to God in this moment of silence and then I will close us in prayer as we prepare for communion together. God in heaven, I ask now that you who know the thoughts of every heart, the challenges of every life represented in this room or online, you know all that we are going through. You know how difficult, how painful, how frightening each of these things are. And I pray that we would truly be able to give these things to you. That we would be reminded as we do that we can trust you, that we can place our confidence in you even when we can't always see that you are at work. And I pray that all that we have lifted up to you in this moment of prayer, you would take, God, and bring healing and bring hope and bring resolution, give wisdom, give direction. And make yourself known to us, we pray. Make yourself known to each one who is suffering or anxious or fearful or sad or angry right now. Let this be a place where we begin to step more and more into renewal and recreation 
by the presence and power of your spirit at work within us. In Jesus' name.